Before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this morning and this time to come together to worship you. Lord, I pray that you would um, speak to us through your word and pray that I would faithfully handle the text that's brought before us this morning. pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 9. The title of the message this morning is The Gospel of Jesus Christ and its importance for all mankind. And we found your place in the Word. Would you please stand in the honor of reading of God's holy Word? Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, As it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You may be seated. So I opened with that passage, because in order to understand the importance of the gospel to everyone, we need to know what the gospel is. The Bible is our sole authority on defining what the gospel is. You'll see the theme of the gospel throughout the entire scriptures. And I believe that 1 Corinthians 15 is one of the most clear passages that there is. And another excellent passage is really the entire book of Romans, uh, and particularly the first four chapters. Now there is some merit in in touching on what the gospel is not, because there's a whole lot of confusion these days on just what the gospel is or isn't. So I want to say that first of all, the gospel is not that God has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel is not that he wants us to be prosperous and successful. Neither does he want us to do all sorts of signs and wonders. And the gospel is not even that we are to help the poor and the downtrodden and the oppressed. Now, some of these, this confusion takes the form of heresy, like some of those first couple of points. And some are more noble, such as helping the poor and needy. But there's one thing that sets apart these false gospels from the true gospel. And that is, who is the focus of the gospel? In each case of the false gospel examples that I mentioned, man is at the center of the focal point of these gospels. So whether the recipients of the benefits of this false gospel are those with itching ears being scratched by the false prophets that we're told about in 2 Timothy 4.3, or whether they are a homeless single mother, the fact remains that if man is the focus of any particular gospel, then the gospel is a false gospel and must be rejected as accurately representing the true gospel. Now, the true gospel exalts our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every biblical example of the gospel will point directly to God as the recipient of the benefits of the true gospel. The gospel is all about the glory of God. And when we proclaim this true gospel, we exalt God alone, for he alone is worthy of our praise and our glory and honor. 
So on Wednesday nights, we've been reviewing a video series by Dr. Steve Lawson on the foundations of grace. He related an illustration put forward by Dr. James Boyce that the teaching of the gospel is similar to a child's playground seesaw or teeter-totter. So if you picture this in your mind, uh, imagine God's glory on one end and man's glory on the other. Every teaching that exalts man tends to lower God, and then every teaching that exalts God humbles man. It's impossible to have both man and God exalted at the same time. So we should constantly strive for a gospel that lifts up God and humbles man. In this message, I want to give you a quick overview of the doctrines of grace and how that relates to the true gospel that gives God all the glory and accomplishes his purpose in the earth. Now, although God gets all the glory in the gospel, it doesn't mean that the gospel is unimportant to man. In fact, the opposite is true. The gospel is vital to man. The gospel is the means that God uses to call his people into his kingdom or to let them perish in their unbelief. The eternal destiny of each individual hangs in the balance according to a right understanding and proclamation of the true gospel. We will see then that the gospel is of extreme importance for both unbelievers and for believers. Now with that introduction, let's begin looking at the gospel as presented in the doctrines of grace. There's a common way to remember these doctrines of grace, and that's through the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. So T is for total depravity, U is for unconditional election, L is for limited atonement, I is for irresistible grace, and P is for perseverance of the saints. All of these five points stand or fall together. You can't believe only a few of them because all of these points are so intertwined that they stand or fall together. And as you see, each person of the Godhead spearheads one of the particular doctrines, and they all work together to accomplish the last one, uh, perseverance of the saints. And I'll tell you that while I've heard of the doctrines of grace and I've studied them since I really became reformed in the year 2005, it's only the, recently that I've heard the teaching of Dr. Steve Lawson that's driven home the point concerning the separate responsibilities of each member of the Godhead and then their unity in working together to accomplish each of these points. Each of the five points can be backed up with Scripture from both the Old and the New Testaments. It will be much easier to see these points in the New Testament because as time goes on, these glorious truths are revealed in further light and, and uh, obvious, uh, <laughs> obvious in the Scriptures. So I'm going to begin talking about the doctrines of grace with the part that man is responsible for. And it's because of man that we must teach the doctrine of total depravity. Jonathan Edwards famously proclaimed, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, as we're told in Genesis 3:6, Adam sinned on behalf of the entire human race. We are conceived in sin, according to Psalm 51:5. The scripture reads, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So this total depravity is not unique to any one people group. There's no one exempt from being born totally depraved. And any of you who are parents should be able to easily uh, relate to this. While we love our children, it's easy to see the effects of the fall uh, in their natural selfishness, rebellion, disobedience, and so on. 
Which of you ever had to teach your child how to lie? Life experiences will often teach them how to become better liars, but the initial lie comes off their tongue due to their total depravity, the wickedness that's inside of their heart. In this state of total depravity, we are rotten to our core. Jeremiah 17.9 says it this way, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And in Romans 1.18 we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Further down in Romans 1, we read that what those with a depraved mind, which includes us all, um, especially prior to our salvation, starting in verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, envy, evil, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And Romans 6.23 tells us the result of this sin and the only solution that exists. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And beginning with the you and tulip, we see God at the center stage in bringing about the salvation of his people. And it's done for his own glory alone. Unconditional election is a work of God the Father. The scripture passages are numerous once again. Let's look at a small sampling of those from both the Old and the New Testaments. Beginning in Exodus 33:19, we see the Father's election of who he will show compassion. Exodus 33:19, and he said, "I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion." So no one, even those who reject the doctrines of grace, seems to have a problem accepting that God chooses Israel as his people, or that he chose Israel as as his people. The fact that God would choose one nation over another doesn't seem to present a problem to them for some reason. But listen to why God chose Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, we read, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, why did God choose Israel as his people? Well, We see that the Lord did that because it was his own free will to do so. It was nothing that Israel had done. It wasn't their choice, but it was God's choice in the matter. They were not the largest or the mightiest or even the wealthiest. He chose them simply because it was God's desire to do so. 
And so it is with the ones that God has chosen for himself. Psalm 33.12 tells us, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people who, whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. Now everyone loves to quote the first half of that verse, often while waving an American flag. And sorry to disappoint, but the nation whose God is the Lord are those who he has chosen. We as the church of God are the nation he has chosen, not necessarily America. And yet, it's not only this nation of Israel that God chose. Even in the Old Testament, we see individuals being chosen for his purposes. In Haggai 2.22, we read, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you Zerubbabel, son of Sheltier, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And God acted similarly towards Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1, 4 through 5, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, and have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Moving into the New Testament, we read in John 1, 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So at first reading of that, an Arminian may look at it and say, see there, those who are the children of God are those that received him. But to prove God's election, just keep reading in the rest of the scripture, I'm sorry, the rest of the sentence given to us in the next scripture, in verse 13. It continues on, it says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, John 6.37 is a passage you will see later under irresistible grace, but we also see the Father's election front and center here. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And I can't speak of the Father's election without bringing up one of my favorite passages on the subject. From Ephesians 1, 3-6, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And I'll wrap up this section on God's election by pointing you to Romans 9:11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Once again, I will point out that I've only scratched the surface of talking on this point. Many, many additional scriptures can be cited affirming this biblical truth. Now, the next letter is, seems to be one of the more controversial ones, but it's L for limited atonement. Now, the wording for limited atonement rubs some people the wrong way because they don't like to think of, of God being limited in any way. But I'd like to point out that the only group who does not advocate a limited atonement in one way or the other, are universalists who believe that all people everywhere and all time will be saved. But we know, however, that that is clearly outside of Orthodox Christianity. Uh, For the reality of hell is something that we're taught over and over again throughout the scriptures. So if anyone goes to hell, then we know that universalism is not true. When we talk about limited atonement, 
we're talking about the atonement being limited either in its scope or in its efficacy. So John Owen said, The Father imposed his wrath due unto, due unto, and the Son underwent punishment for either, number one, all the sins of all men, number two, all the sins of some men, or number three, some of, some of the sins of all men. In which case, may be, it may be said, number one, that if the last be true, all men have some sins to answer for, and so none are saved. And number two, that if the second be true, then Christ in their stead suffered for all the sins of, of all the elect in the whole world. And this is the truth. And number three, but if the first be the case, why are not all men free from the punishment due unto their sins? And you answer, because of unbelief. I ask, is this unbelief a sin or is it not? If it be, then Christ suffered the punishment due unto it. Or he did not. If he did, why must we hinder them more than their other sins for which he died? If he did not, he did not die for all their sins. That's the end of Owen's quote. <clears throat> so one solution to avoid the wording of limited atonement, if people have a problem with it referring to it as that, is to refer to it as particular redemption. And that's a good way to phrase it, but it kind of blows apart our TULIP acronym, which makes it easier to remember all of these points. Regardless of what you call it, limited atonement is a work of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And is with all the other five points, there's scriptural support for it in both the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, for this point, however, the New Testament examples are clearer since we're dealing with the work of Christ and we're only given Christ in types and shadows in the Old Testament. But regardless, there are two Old Testament examples that I'd like to bring to your attention. And I'm going to give the credit for this to Steve Lawson because he covered this in his video and I thought it was really good. These two are, uh, one is the scapegoat and the other is the day of atonement. And as I read each of these scripture passages, consider that in both of these acts, these things were done to atone for the sins of Israel alone and not for all the sins of all the surrounding nations uh, that existed at the time. In Leviticus 16, 8-10, we read, Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Now the day of atonement is defined in Leviticus 23, 27 through 28. On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you, and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. As I mentioned, these are particular requirements given only to the nation of Israel for their redemption and not for the redemption of all the other nations. But turning to the New Testament, we get a really better, clearer picture of Christ dying for his people in particular. Matthew one twenty one, in speaking of Mary, says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, the scripture doesn't say that he might save his people, and neither does it say that he will save everyone. But the scripture says that he will save his people from their sins. And then in John 6.39 we read, 
This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. The great priestly prayer prayed by Jesus in John 17 shows the doctrine of limited atonement throughout it. Verse 9 stands out particularly. It reads, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Once again, a deep study can be made of these scriptures, uncovering this doctrine throughout. And the few scriptures that I have mentioned only barely scratch the surface. The next letter in our tulip is for I, for irresistible grace. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned earlier that we would see John 6.37 again. So let's look at it once more. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. So what I want us to see here is that in describing those who are elect, it says that they will come to me. This is the effectual, irresistible call of the Holy Spirit. There's no wiggle room here. All will come. There's no exceptions or no free choice of the individual that are listed here. And as with all the other doctrines of grace, irresistible grace is found in both the Old Testament and the New. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 reads, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. And in a a clear example of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, we read in Ezekiel 36, 26-27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Now moving on to the New Testament, we see... In Acts 13.48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Those who were appointed or elected by the Father believed. The order is important. They believed because they were elected. And because they were elected, they believed as directed by the Spirit of God. Now, because of the unity in the Godhead, there are times when the Scripture simply says the Lord did such and such, when it is the Holy Spirit that the Scripture is referring to. This is the case in Acts 16.14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So we see that the Lord opened her heart. And here, once again, is exampled the irresistible grace of God applied to the heart of Lydia. Romans 8.14 identifies those who are being led by the Spirit of God as the sons of God. In a display of God's grace applied uh, to our speech, we read in 1 Corinthians 12.3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is the Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So again and again, we read over and over of God's irresistible grace shown to those who are elected by the Father and atoned for by the Son. If those who were acted upon by the first two persons of the Godhead were to resist his grace, then it would thwart his plans. And we know that no one can thwart the plans of God. Lastly, we come to the P and Tulip, standing for the perseverance of the saints. 
This is the work of the triune God with all three persons working together to preserve those whom the Father has elected and the Son has atoned for, then the Spirit has called. Perhaps the most beautiful description of God's persevering, persevering grace given to his people in the Old Testament is when he speaks of the new covenant described in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 through 34. That reads, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Now from the New Testament, in John ten twenty-seven through 29 Christ himself tells us, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8, 38-39, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And again, in the epistle to the Philippians, verses 1 through 6, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 6, For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So now this was just a very lightning fast overview of the main points of the doctrines of grace. This is all gospel truth that we see here. Remember, God is the actor, and plus, he's, all that he's doing, he's doing for his own glory. The title of the message is the gospel of Jesus Christ and its importance for all mankind. Most of what I've talked about so far has been the work of the gospel in the salvation of sinners, and this is of prime importance of the gospel for unbelievers. Now, there are two types of unbelievers, and these are the unbelieving elect and the unbelieving reprobate. The importance of of the gospel to the unbelieving elect is that this is the very means by which God will call them into his kingdom. These newly won converts are commissioned to go spread the good news to those that they come in contact with, even as we've been learning about in our Sunday school class with evangelism. So the importance of the gospel to the unbelieving elect is quite apparent. Their very eternal destiny is at stake. So you may wonder then, what in the world could be the importance of the gospel to the unbelieving reprobate? Now, these are the ones who reject the gospel all the way to their death, and they die in their sin, and they perish in hell for all eternity. Charles Spurgeon said that if you die and find yourself in heaven, it's only by God's grace that you are there. But if you die and you find yourself in hell, it's your choice that brought you there. His point was simply that the reprobate are fully responsible for their own actions. The gospel is an outward call to all living people. Those who reject it do so in rebellion to Almighty God. So the gospel serves to them to glorify God in his righteous judgment. If it were not for the reprobate who hate God, we would not be able to witness this important attribute of God. 
If you are an unbeliever hearing this message, then I ask you, which are you? Are you one of God's elect who has simply yet to respond to this outward gospel call? If so, then I urge you to do that today. Don't delay another hour. Cry out to Him. Now, mere men cannot tell who are the elect and who are reprobate. As believers, we are told to preach the gospel to everyone. And only God can know the hearts of man. So please do not use the excuse to not come to Christ because you consider yourself to be reprobate. There is no one outside of God's reach. And there is no sin that's, that's greater than the gospel. Um, the Apostle Paul once killed Christians. He persecuted the church of Christ. This church is, is Christ's bride. And I know as, as a husband, if someone were to torture and kill my bride, I would have a very hard time forgiving that person. Although I would be called to, it would still be very tough as, as a man to be able to, to stand up and, and look the other way when someone is abusing my bride in that way. But that's exactly what Christ did for his church. He's, we who are, uh, the Apostle Paul persecuted and, and killed his bride, the one for he, that he loved, the one he gave his life for, and yet he gloriously saved Paul and called him among that very bride uh, that he died for. And he could do the same for you. It doesn't matter what sin that you're involved in or what you've done in the past. The grace of God, the blood of Jesus covers all of your sin. And there's nothing so great that, we, that is beyond our repentance that we can come to him. So he has, he has commanded every one of us to repent. Those who don't are in, are in a rebellious defiance to our Creator. And 10,000 years in hell will not be enough to purge the sin of those who are suffering there. Only an eternity will suffice. Now many of you here today are already believers. We could praise God for that. And one fallacy that we hear in the modern church is that the gospel is only for the unbeliever. It is completely false. While the gospel was extremely important in our justification, as we've already seen thoroughly, it's equally important for our sanctification. The Baptist Catechism says this of sanctification. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. So the gospel is important to be sanctified in that we need the intervention of Christ to be enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Even as believers, we wrestle with our flesh and we strive to live unto Christ. Some have tried to make the point that God is the God of second chances. Well, I say hogwash to that because um, if we all got second chances, we would all blow it again. If we all got third, fourth, and fifth, we would continue to run out of chances. When the fact of the matter is, is that although we are being sanctified, we have so far to go to reach perfection that we will never attain it in this life. Though that should always be our goal, it's an unreachable goal. And it's by Christ's imputed righteousness that we can confidently stand before the, the Father as God's children, resting in His finished work on the cross, where He died on our behalf. And finally, the importance of the gospel looms over our glorification. When we die, our bodies go into the grave to await the resurrection at the last day. 
1 Corinthians 15, if we were to read further, goes on and talks about the resurrection of the dead. And just, just as God gave life to our soul and our justification, he'll also give life to our bodies at our glorification. And just as we are helpless to save ourselves at our, at our justification, likewise, likewise we'll be unable to glorify our own bodies ourselves. We need the work of Christ to accomplish that. So in conclusion, I'd like to ask, where do you stand? If you are an unbeliever, do you see the need to repent this very hour and turn to Christ? If you are a believer, do you see the need to apply this work of Christ on your behalf to sanctify you in your daily walk? We must never lose sight of these glorious truths. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, that your gospel is just as important for the believer as it is for the unbeliever, and that all of mankind needs your sacrifice and, and that you've paid, though not all will accept and not all will be called into your kingdom. We do pray, Lord, for each, each of us. We pray for our family members. Lord, we pray that you would, would hear our prayers. And I know that many of us have family members who are lost and who are on their way to hell. Lord, we do intercede on their behalf. And we pray, Lord, that you would hear our prayers and, and save souls for your kingdom. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.